The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash. This week, we dive into the topic of weight loss surgery. We go deep with weight loss surgeon, Dr. John Jorgensen. Dr. John opens up about his views on obesity, weight loss surgery, and PCOS. In 2017, I paid John a visit at St. George Hospital, private hospital where he works here in Sydney, and I watched him perform weight loss surgery through a few small incisions in the abdomen. He took a 2,000 mil, that is two litre stomach, and reduced it to 150 mils. I watched in awe at how cool and calm he was as he did this, and at the same time explaining the process to me. I thought he was fantastical. A little bit about Dr. Jorgensen. He is a specialist upper gastrointestinal surgeon with appointments at St. George Private and Public Hospitals here in Sydney. He's been on the staff at St. George since 1995 and has extensive experience in open and laparoscopic upper GI surgery. He's an accredited endoscopist for gastroscopy. His research degree was on laparoscopic cholecystectomy, which means removal of, of the gallbladder, and laparoscopic hiatus hernia repair. In 2002, he had a 12-month sabbatical in Lund, Sweden, studying obesity surgery. And then upon returning home since 2003, there has been a multidisciplinary surgical weight loss program on the Sir George campus, thanks to John. Dr. Jorgensen is the current director of bariatric surgery at St. George Private Hospital. It is the largest volume bariatric unit in Australia and is a designated center of excellence in metabolic bariatric surgery. All bariatric procedures are offered here. John, in this interview, offers some great insights into weight and obesity. I found talking to him so insightful and interesting. I hope you enjoy our interview. John, is it Jorgensen or Jorgensen? Uh, in Australia, it's Jorgensen. In Sweden, it's Jorgensen. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for agreeing to talk to us today on um, a topic that a lot of people have an interest in, especially myself. I wanted uh, us to talk a little bit about you first and to basically go into why you became a bariatric or weight loss surgeon. Uh, well, so... I'm a trained general surgeon and then I specialised in upper gastrointestinal surgery. Initially, in my post-fellowship, I did pancreas biliary surgery in Glasgow and came back and established an upper GI practice. And when I was about five, six years into that, one of the endocrinologists pulled me up in the corridor and said, uh, you guys, by that meaning the upper GI guys, need to establish uh, a weight loss surgical clinic and that sort of surprised me a lot and uh, went off and read about it and realised that this was now a, well, I guess we all knew that obesity is becoming a huge problem. What year was this though? Uh, this was, uh, well, this I, so I did a sabbatical in Sweden at that point in bariatric surgery when I was 40 years of age, so that was 19 years ago. Mm. So I worked in Lund in Sweden for 12 months on a weight loss surgical unit so that we could set it up. One of the reasons I wanted to do it in Sweden is that you know that Sweden doesn't really have any private 
sector. It's all a public university hospital. So they don't do anything that they don't believe is worthwhile because so it's all evidence-based. And they have a very – the most iconic study on weight loss surgery and its effectiveness is called the Swedish Abuse Subject Study that's now out to 30 years follow-up. And it's an incredible study, but uh, so they they base their sort of treatment algorithms on evidence as best they can, because the sort of commercial side's taken out by the lack of it, if you like. Do you remember your first ever weight loss operation, or even just watching it first being done? What were your impressions of that? Well, I think my being an upper GI surgeon, I've been trained to do esophagectomies and gastrectomies, etc., for cancer. So. The weight loss operations are not that complicated, apart from the fact that you have a big patient. So the clinic I worked in the, in the, uh, in Sweden were doing gastric bypass. And they were doing that open at the time, as in with a big incision. Although the incision was fairly small, maybe 10, 15 centimetres, the patients... That's had, small. <laughs> yeah, it is small yeah. for a big patient. And mm. The patients were operated on in a peripheral hospital and went home in two days, which is really, we're not achieving much better than that with keyhole surgery now. And uh, surgery would take about an hour to do. It was very standardised, mechanised, and and it worked very well. And subsequent to that, we've, uh, you know, nearly all of weight loss surgeries now done laparoscopic surgery because the keyhole approach takes away that morbidity of a big wound and everything that comes with that. So with the types of weight loss surgery, what types are there? There's the banding, m- most people know about the banding, but is that is that kind of old school now? Can you can you talk to us through those different options? Yeah, so and the, how do you make a decision about which patient gets what? Yeah, so uh, there's still some debate about that and just to sort of declare that if you go to a um, weight loss surgical conference, you'll always have people that champion their specific operation. But each of these surgeries work a little bit differently and therefore do offer some advantages and disadvantages. And like any intervention, as you know, in medicine, you try and sort of marry the best therapy to the person in front of you and, and, and their particular variables. So you can't really prescribe weight loss surgery like a formula. You really do need to have a consultation with the patient, their age, you know, their social circumstances, whether you're trying to treat uh, sleep apnea or... or um, infertility. Uh, infertility <laughs> or, or joint problems or whatever you're trying to treat. Because, you know, like if you take an operation like gastric bypass... If the person in front of you is has got terrible knees and they're taking buckets of non-steroidals, which is a contraindication in the bypass, then you'd be silly to give them a bypass where they're going to get a stomal ulcer, which you then can't treat, whereas you could do a sleeve gastrectomy where they would still be able to take their non-steroidals that are probably important for that particular person. What's a sleeve gastrectomy? Because you're doing quite a lot of those now, aren't you? Can you explain to us in simple terms what that involves? Uh, so a sleeve gastrectomy anatomically involves removing probably 90% of the stomach. So the way we do that is we size the stomach by put, passing a bougie through your mouth while you're asleep. And it, it, What's a the, bougie, sorry? A bougie is like a garden hose. Oh, okay. Nasogastric tube, same thing? It's like a nasogastric tube, but the ones that we size the sleeve on is 36 French, which is about... Uh, 
12, 14 millimetre diameter, whereas your normal nasogastric tube, I think 16 French or something. So it's maybe five, six. So it's a little bit bigger than that. And we sized the stomach on that. Now, the one of the things that's interesting about weight loss surgery and is how do these operations actually work? And one of the things is that we have a two-litre stomach. and Men and women, same? Yeah. And big people don't have bigger stomachs than little people. There's no correlation. The thing is that that stomach is ideally made for hunter and gatherer living, which basically means episodic binge eating. If you think about it, if we were hunting out in a bush, when we killed a pig we would eat as much as we could because uh, we might not eat for a couple more days and we don't have a fridge so we have this big stomach that allows us to binge eat and so a lot of our satiety mechanisms are built around that uh, and also having this big stomach then allows us to have a lot of energy intake and then do other things during the day which has allowed us to evolve over other animals that waste their whole day grazing so this binge eating has been good for us. The trouble, but it was highly advantageous when you would eat once every two or three days. Now, of course, that we can binge eat three times a day every day, it's become problematic. But those mechanisms of satiety are still the same. And that's why, you know, restaurants like Sizzlers do so well because they're just exploiting this underlying <laughs> want for us all to feel fully sated when we eat mm. and, and this is why it's so hard to stop eating like your grandmother says only eat half the food on your plate well that's a good comment but it's hard to follow because we're still not sated at, at a half a plate of food so the sleeve gastrectomy by giving you a tubular banana shaped stomach that may be about 150 mils in size rather than two liters what it effectively means is that when you eat food, it will go straight into the small bowel. Your, body, your stomach doesn't have now this receptive relaxation capacity to store the food. And because the food enters your uh, small bowel very quickly, your small bowel interprets this, that you've eaten a lot. So it will then secrete hormones that will slow down your eating. So it will secrete GLP-1, PYY, and various GIP, CCK, lots of these very powerful hormones that when we're med students we learnt but never understood. I don't think I ever learnt any of that. <laughs> well, you would have seen a big list of them, yep. but we, that but was about it. it. Anyway. Yeah, but yep. these are super important hormones mm. and they're all about our eating behaviour, feeding behaviour. And so we exacerbate this, what's called the increntin hormone response, which has two predominant effects. One of them is that profound effect on satiety both by gastric stasis and also on your hypothalamus and also an increase in insulin secretion <clears throat> or an improvement in your insulin handling so you, these surgeries are considered metabolic surgeries because they cause what's called an, uh, an improvement in your insulin sensitivity so the, and then there's a change in your microbiome. There's I was going to say, yeah, by taking pool. out some of your stomach, are you affecting the rest of the, the gut, yeah, the gut well, system? The, the data on that is that morbidly obese people have a microbiome that's fairly common to them. And when they have surgery, they end up with a lean microbiome within six months, which you'd sort of expect because your microbiome responds to 
how much you eat, when you eat, what you eat. So we're changing that in a pretty mm. big way. And a microbiome way. is a living, thriving system, isn't the it? microbiome is yeah. one of our organs, yeah. Mm. And I wow, think, never thought of it as an, as an organ. Well, it's it is an amazing, organ. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's got more, I think it's got, what, 100 times or is it 100 million times more DNA bacterial mm. than human mm. DNA? Bottom line is you want to view it as an organ because malfunction of your microbiome is a disease. It causes lots of problems that we could talk about forever, but um, it's definitely attached to obesity. I mean, one of the fascinating microbiome things, for instance, as studies in rats is that if you feed rats Diet Coke, they become obese. And then if you get the feces from that rat and give it to other rats, they become obese as well. Wow. Suggesting that the mechanism is that the artificial sugar gets into the colon, changes the microbiome in a way that promotes obesity, generally through increasing insulin resistance, through tumor necrosis factor and other things, because all these organisms secrete various things that not only are good for the enterocytes, but also the immune layer behind that and, and what gets secreted systemically. So the mechanism, the, this is a, like an obesogen, if you like, where you get overweight, but not from consuming a calorie, but by changing your metabolic mm, and what situation. You're yeah, yeah, yeah. So this demonstrates that a calorie is not a calorie mm. and a lot of the things that are making people obese may not be food substances. They could be plastic molecules. like The endocrine a, disruptors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's what, um, um, you know, piece of the, what, what's, it, um, what's it called again? That's all the plastic bottles we're worried about. Um, Oh, the parabens and the, yeah, the phthalates. Yeah, all of those drugs. BPAs. BPA-free, yeah. Yep. So BPA was a synthetic estrogen, yep. right? And, and so all of these plastic molecules are endocrine disruptors mm. and, uh, you know, our whole body's homeostasis, energy homeostasis is intrinsic to the endocrine system and this parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system and... So if you throw anything into there, like plastic molecules, you, you could end up with a problem if you have the genetic susceptibility for that. Can I ask um, one big question? Is obesity a disease? Um, yeah, I think it does qualify for a disease because it's, um, it's in epidemic proportions at the moment and it results in a lot of uh, comorbidities that will uh, not only diminish your quality of life but reduce your quantity of life. And that's absolutely beyond question that there's not a lot of good things about being morbidly obese. Now, we're talking about morbidly obese that's sort of a BMI of 35 or above or typically 30, Which I see a lot 40 of. <laughs> kilos. Yeah, well, yeah. it's like a lot of people now. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's people who are 30 to 40 kilograms overweight. Now, the importance of calling it, a, so some people are reluctant to do that because they want to hang on to this, this behavioral model of obesity. Now, of course, we're all part of what we do and decisions we make. But if you look at the data on obesity, on people who are significantly overweight, uh, 
the the ability to lose weight and keep it off long term is so poor, like one to two, maybe three percent with the best lifestyle interventions, that clearly there's something going on here. We can't just say that people have suddenly become absolutely hopeless. I mean, most people that you see, I see they're overweight, have probably read more diet books than you and I have. They understand calories. They understand macronutrients. They've tried everything. And they can't succeed because obesity is a biological disease, is a complex interplay of their genetics and the epigenetics or the environment that's impacting on that individual. Now, of course, there's a psychological component to that, but again, your genetics and epigenetics determines that in a lot of ways as well. So this concept that we're all free agents here making our decisions separate from our biology is pretty sort of naive, I think. And for those of us who are not overweight, I think we're just lucky that we're not overweight. I think the take-home message, the, the current view of obesity is that it's a set point abnormality and by set point we mean that the hypothalamus which is that part of your brain that uh, keeps you alive keeps all your important thing in homeostasis the grand conductor ph Mm. your oxygen your co2 your magnesium whether you ovulate or not whether you know this is all done centrally none of us are in control of this and the reason for that is that we can't be trusted. I mean, there's no way your hypothalamus is going to let you decide how many heartbeats you're going to have. <laughs> I'm or, glad. I'm glad it's what, yeah, automatic. You'll, you'll forget, right? <laughs> you'll be watching a TV show and you'll forget <laughs> to breathe, right? And suddenly you'll die. Yeah, we don't so, want that. So it, the same comes for the immediate, your body at any time needs carbon atoms to burn for energy. It cannot allow energy storage to be delegated to our conscious will or our forebrains. I mean, our forebrains are used to watch TV, write poetry, you know, have fun down the surf. But this energy storage is being done for us in a very, very sophisticated way. And in systems that have developed probably over 2 million, if not the 50 million years that life's been on the planet, but 2 million that we've been out of the trees, Homo sapiens. So we have this very powerful system that's fairly asymmetric in that it tends to protect weight gain and resist weight loss. Uh, It's all about survival, right? Yeah, yeah. So if you think about the Darwinian pressures as to who we are here, we are the results of people that have survived famines, wars, droughts. So there's been a selection going on about the sort of Uh, that we have this ability to live on fairly minimal calories for a long time and resist weight loss. Because your body's view, fat is our obviously our fat storage. It's not, uh, your body doesn't count calories. It's measuring your energy levels, fat through leptin, uh, sugar generally or carbs generally through insulin, muscle, mTOR levels and various things. But your your protein's not really an energy storage system. You can't be burning your engine to survive. You, you've got to burn fat, right? And, f- you know, we're born at a certain weight and then we go up to 6 kilos, 10, 15. So your body's always defending the heaviest weight you've ever been. 
So if for some reason you end up being 120 kilos or 150 kilos, and there's lots of reasons why people become overweight, and they can become overweight, you know, they can be born overweight if you like. They can be seeing their dietitian when they're age five, or they can be skinny teenagers and something happens and they become overweight as a uh, 20-year-old. For women, it's often pregnancies. They don't recover from the insulin resistance of pregnancy and they put on weight and can't lose that weight. Mm. But once they hit that high weight, it's very hard for them to come down because any reduction in calories or any sort of energy loss, either by reducing your calories or increasing your activity, is going to be detected by a hypothalamus the mm. minute it occurs. I mean, you know, if you miss one meal, you're hungry. Mm. And when you generally eat your next meal, you're going to make up for what you missed because this, this mathematics has been done for you without you thinking, a bit like, you know, how many breaths you take based on how much oxygen is around if you say you're diving or something like that. So when people try and lose weight, which we call dieting, it initiates what's called a famine reaction. And that famine reaction is incredibly powerful. It's evolutionary and it's relentless and it goes on until the person regains all of the weight. Now, the famine reaction has been studied to a certain degree, and the things that I, we could know about it is that it's characterized by increasing hunger, by increasing your ghrelin levels. Ghrelin for gremlin, that's how I remember that. Yeah, it's, yep. a, uh, it's our only hunger hormone. Mm. We only got one, which mm. also tells you that we're sort of set up to put on weight. If we only need one hormone to eat and we've got all these ones, <clears throat> satiety hormones, or so would you, would you then say, John, it's normal to be overweight? Because it's from what how you're describing it, it's almost like the body is is geared to to, uh, to hang on to fat. Yes, I think it is normal to have some fat, but it's not normal to be morbidly obese. Okay. And I I think that um, so you could think of your fat stores as you know your body having you ready for some hard times, but. You know, again, if you think about survival, if you're out on the plains of Serengeti on the bush and you're 140 k's, you're not moving so fast. You're not climbing trees so well. You're not jumping out of the way of saber-toothed tigers. So that's not an evolutionary benefit. Mm. While you might have a lot of energy, you, 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 there's other downsides. So I think being in sort of two-digit body percentage fats, 15%, say for men, 20, 25 for women is is appropriate. To be in single figures, you know, with a six-pack or an eight-pack is not where your body wants you to be. No, which is why we see issues Which is why it's well. so super hard to yeah. be there, even for the most committed, uh, you know, athlete or the most committed fitness model, for them to rip on down a 4 or 5% body fat takes a huge amount of work. And that's not healthy and either. huge amounts of deprivation yeah. and, to be fair, probably the usage of a lot of uh, body composition-altering drugs mm. that are not... Uh, but you see those mm. people and they um, inherently have a lot of, I'm not saying all of them do, but a lot of them do have issues with um, body dysmorphia. Oh, definitely. Uh, you know, obsession with eating, you know, their periods stop. Often mm. I see women with that low percentage fat mass and then they're not getting their period and they wonder why. Um, so... Yeah. It's so in exactly right. So, but in terms of obesity, we from animals again, uh, we can breed rats with fat rats to make a fat predisposed rat. 
but it's very hard to make an animal morbidly obese unless you give it abnormal food. Mm. So a classic rat study is where they decide how much, uh, what, 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 what's the motivation a rat has for eating and what they do is that they put food across a cage and they've got to take a few electric shocks to get over there. So it's like a test, are you hungry enough, you know? And the amount of shocks that a rat will take eating normal chow uh, is less than if it's fully sated but it's allowed to go over and eat rat chow with condensed milk. So in even though it's biologically full, because it's now eating a hedonistic food, which is one of the drivers of eating, it'll take a lot more punishment to eat. So... This is an example of how you can change the behavior of a human, I mean, of an animal by changing its diet. Now, to me, it's very... Thank God for mice, huh? It's very important. Well, you, you mm. have a look at the cows. I mean, you want to fatten up a cow, you feed it grain, right? Now, mm. cows are not meant to eat grain, they're meant to eat grass. Mm. That's how, like, all of the domestic animals in uh, in the States are fed corn now and they're all mm. fat and mm. there's corn DNA in almost everything. And we're everything. eating their meat. Yeah, and then yeah. there's corn DNA in that. So the point is that I don't think – that's why I think morbid obesity is a disease because it's a set-point abnormality that's been driven by – abnormal foods that we've created for ourselves in the last 50, 60 years that this obesity epidemic's been here, and it's targeted people who are specifically genetically predisposed to that more than others. But all of the communities become more overweight for sure, but the number of morbidly obese people have gone up significantly from less than 1% to 4 or 5% of the population now. Mm. I think in the States, one in three people have a BMI over 30 now. Wow. So that's like a change in the phenotype of humans in five, 50 mm. years. That's why I think you can't really blame it on the individual. And I think one of the important concepts of it being labelled as a disease is that the medical profession should treat obesity based on evidence, not based on uh, ignorance or based on prejudice or based on, oh, look, you're overweight, go away, come back and mm, see me. We had that discussion before. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's not appropriate, just like it's not appropriate to do that if you came and saw your doctor with high blood pressure or, or uh, any other disease, they would treat it according to best evidence and that should be the case for obesity as well. Yeah, I have found there's been quite a lot of resistance in the medical field, which I find quite disappointing that there are a number of profession professionals out there that will not really provide the patient with support. Um, it, and it can be as simple as go and see this really good dietitian mm. or um, go and see this really good surgeon to consider mm. surgery or consider seeing this endocrinologist to consider giving you a drug. And what both John and I agree on is that doctors especially should give patients more support and that often could mean I get my patients to come and you know listen in on your Tuesday evening talk which will then now take me to um, you know what what talks do you offer on Tuesdays at Tuesday nights uh, no, education we've gone, evenings we've, we've seminars on weight loss surgery we've gone over to Saturday mornings once a month because parking is easier for okay. people and, uh, and then we can sort of roll on a bit longer if we need to. But, yeah, once a month uh, I run an information seminar in my offices at St George Private um, to really cover 
a lot of what we just touched on so that people sort of have a understanding of what obesity is and what it isn't and what's required to get a good result. And I think in terms of what you were just saying, I, I sort of get why doctors who are busy uh, are not so interested in treating people who are overweight because the results have been so nihilistic for so long and we really haven't got a lot of good staff in the space between lifestyle, as in healthy diet and exercise, and surgery. There's this huge gap between BMI 25 to 35 where people are miserable being overweight, where all the interventions uh, are fairly limited. I mean, there's been, there is currently Sixenda, which is useful. It's a GLP-1 analog that's been used by a lot of the weight loss physicians. Oh, I've put some patients on that, and yeah. um, so far everyone seems pretty empowered by it, I would say. Yeah, and there's a, be better, version, there's a better version coming out, which is Contravene, which is going to be like a one injection per week. And, oh, that's fantastic. And When's that coming out? I think in the next, it should be this yeah. year. And, you know, I, obviously the drug companies are trying to do their best to come up because – to get back to what I was saying before, if you accept, accept that it's a set point abnormality and losing weight results in a famine reaction, any treatment that's going to be effective has to minimise this famine reaction. Because what you're trying to do is to make the task of weight loss and specifically weight loss maintenance doable. Now, that's about reducing this famine reaction because mm. that's what makes it doable, right? So weight loss surgery is super effective because it minimizes that famine reaction to a lot of degrees. It manipulates a lot of the uh, biological changes that occur with significant weight loss and the different surgeries have different sort of powers to do that. And uh, But that's how you want to... I always sort of explain morbid obesity or the set point to patients like that they're stuck by these tension bands to the heaviest weight ever. And when they walk across the room and get to their ideal body weight, those 10 tension bands are absolutely quivering, you know, mm -hmm. and they can, can't hold. Mm. The only thing that they're, they're using to get over there is their psychological strength. So psychological strength is important. Mindset. Hey? Mindset is important, but they're constantly got these bands, you know, quivering. And at some tug, point... It's a tug of war. Yeah, and at some point when their um, life, you know, something happens at work, relationship, and their ability to stay in this fight wanes, they just flip back to the heaviest mm. weight again. And that's the sort of known yo-yo dieting effect and surgery is like as if you can't maybe eight of those 10 bands so you still need to put an effort in to stay over there and by effort i mean eating healthy food exercise sleeping well stress management all of these things are critical and surgery is just an adjunct on top of that mm -hmm. but it makes that task doable mm -hmm. as opposed to non-doable mm. can i ask um i'm a patient I've got PCOS, I've got a BMI of 38, haven't been able to get pregnant. My fertility doctor says, go away and lose weight. I've come to you, John, for a consult. Can you take me through weight loss surgery? What's it going to do for me? How do I prepare? What do I expect? 
Okay, so with a BMI 38, um, like any condition, I would say that, you know, you have, you're, you're morbidly obese and you, PCOS tells me that you have underlying insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia as the cause, which to be fair is 99 point whatever percentage of patients we operate on. They all have insulin resistance, consequent hyperinsulinemia is the fundamental So they problem. all do, they all usually do. Absolutely. Yeah. If you, I mean, they might have, their fasting insulins might not be sky high, they might be 18 or 20, but if you look at their homers, they're going to be insulin resistant. I mean, you could say that your basic body weight is a function of your insulin sensitivity, right? So when this is why when you're a teenager, you can eat whatever you like and not put on weight because you're superbly insulin sensitive, right? And as we get older, we can't do that because we become a bit more insulin resistant as we get on. Do we know why that happens? Why do we become more insulin resistant as we get older? As women get menopausal, why why do we gain weight? Why why do we become insulin resistant? Is there uh, a reason look, for I that? Don't, I don't know for sure, but I would say that a big part of it in our modern society is that you don't want to view the insulin resistance as a disease. You want to view the resistance of cells to insulin as a compensatory thing due to a relentless barrage of too much carbohydrate. Mm. So the cells are not being naughty. The cells are saying, listen, I've had enough carbohydrate. They're just responding. Yeah. Yeah. And if you think of the insulin as the salesman of carbohydrates, the initial job, because your body doesn't want you to have high sugar level because being hyperglycemic is oxidative stress and bad for you, it's trying to force these these excess carbs into the cells by sending more insulin salesmen there called insulin hyperinsulinemia. And the cells are resisting it because they're already full of carbs, right? And this is what happens, you know, and because we are constantly uh, exposing ourselves to this excess carbohydrate. So if you now go over to Papua New Guinea or, or go to where people are eating, a, a, you know, a normal diet, they don't become diet. You don't see type 2 diabetes or other manifestations of insulin resistance in those societies, and in fact, there's an immense, incredible study done in 1986, I think, by Dr. O'Day, who's an endocrinologist, that took 12 fully diabetic, you know, metabolic disaster type Aboriginals with the full metabolic syndrome from Darwin, drove them in a troop carrier and dropped them off in, in Durban, which is part of the bush, left them there for four weeks. And they were because they were full bloods, they could live off the land. And when they picked them up a month later, they resolve almost everything. So you could say that the Western diet, at least to the indigenous Australian, is an it's not just a long term problem, it's an acute toxin if mm. you can become better in four weeks. And so when they observed what they ate, they were basically eating eighty percent protein fat very few carbs, and the few carbs that they got were super complex. Were they men or women? They're all the, men the, from memory. Me right? are yeah. It's a shame that they didn't do it in that study in, in women. They need to do it in women, yeah, women with sure. PCOS and uh, so uh, infertility. So you come and see me. I'd say, look, you have uh, – so whatever you do, you're going to have to make some lifestyle changes. You're going to have to eat a low-carbohydrate diet. 
whether you have surgery or not, this is critical because being uh, PCOS is telling us that you have hyperinsulinemia insulin resistance. And this is because your individual tolerance to the carbs you're eating is, is not good. Uh, you, your next door neighbour might be able to eat as much carbs as you do and not have a problem because they have a different genetic mm. predisposition. Yeah, but you, for you, you you've got to accept that. that. Yeah, but that's just the way it is, you know. My friend eats mm. heaps of yeah, carbs and she that, has no problems. But, yeah, but she might have some problems getting sunburned when you don't. I mm. mean, we have different genetic predispositions. So, and then of, of, of course, it's got to do with your level of activity too, because if you're a full on sportsman like a Tour de France rider, you can eat buckets of white spaghetti. It doesn't matter because you're burning it. Mm. But most of the patients that we see are not in the Tour mm. de France. And it's know, all about fueling for activity, isn't it? Yeah, basically. So, their excess carbohydrates for the carbohydrate storage or what they're using. And then they develop this issue. So they're going to have to have a low-carb diet long-term. Okay, so I'm going to have to have low-carb, yeah. no pasta every day for lunch, that kind of thing? No, no. Yep. We, we recommend the CSIRO, low-carbohydrate mm -hmm. That's diet a great book, book, by the way. Because it's Australian, yeah. it's scientific, it's accessible, it's 20 bucks mm. it came And up. I love their protein book, the yeah, CSIRO. Yeah, protein. it's a good book. And yep. I, so we definitely do that. Now, the next thing you're going to have to do is to consider a little bit. So one of the issues with carbs these days is not just the amount, so that you've got this high glycemic index carbs, processed carbs are horrible, but you also the glycemic load, but also the fact that people eat constantly. Now, again, if we go back to our hunter and gatherer days, we used to have long periods of fasting by definition in our life, not because we chose to, but simply because there's no food, right? But a human takes about eight to 10 hours to start to burn fat effectively and start to show a few ketones, which we now know are epigenetically positive factors and stuff. So if you think of the modern diet, which is a high sugar breakfast cereal, because someone said you've got to eat cereal for breakfast. Mr. Kellogg's. Mr. Kellogg's, thank you. <laughs> and then morning tea, then lunch, afternoon tea, dinner, and then a snack before bed. These people's insulins are never going down to fasting levels, so they are never burning fat because you cannot burn fat unless your insulin is at a fasting level. So on top of a low-carb diet, we would strongly recommend time-restricted eating. Mm. And eating your carbs more so in the morning, yeah, would you I say? Yeah, I think that makes sense, yeah, because yeah. when you're active, yeah, and, and tailor it off. And I think this concept of eating huge carbo-laden meals at eight at night is a disaster, you know, yeah. for people. And you should probably eat much earlier than that, four or five o'clock, and then don't eat anything till breakfast. Then you're giving yourself a 12-hour window of fasting every day, which is pretty simple to do because you're asleep. Now, you'll find that when people are super insulin resistant, they can't do that because their body is so used to burning sugar all the time that they can't get through that 12 hours and they have to get up and night They almost eat. get a withdrawal. Yeah, they, and yeah. night eating is like absolutely correlated to obesity. So get back to you as the patient, low-carb eating, time-restricted eating, 
exercise. We specifically like resistance training and high-intensity training. So lifting heavy shit, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, lifting weights. Women, don't be afraid to lose no, weight, no, to you, um, lift weights. You won't weights. bulk up. You can't bulk up. Not, but it'll improve <laughs> Not like your men insulin. anyway. Yeah, improve your insulin sensitivity. And so exercise of any sort, walking is, I mean, I think the pyramid for exercise should be walking, low-state cardio every day, at least an hour, and then you can put on top of that high-intensity training and resistance training, but you've got to do that. Now, a lot of people don't like exercise, but my job isn't really to uh, tell people what they like, but what they have to do. If you compromise on any of these things, there'll be a compromising outcome, and I guess everyone has to decide what their commitment is, and this is where the mindset comes into it a bit and why we have a cognitive behavioral therapy program as part of our weight loss surgical intervention not because we believe it's a psychiatric disease but because for lifestyle change all of us can do with life coaching to make it Mm. to, to achieve it and finally i think stress management is super important uh it's really about cortisol and central obesity. If you're fully stressed, and it's stress doesn't mean just your pathological boss screaming at you. <laughs> it, it can be like overtraining. It can be uh, never having a rest at home. So it can be both physical and psychological stress. Not sleeping stress. properly. Yeah, and mm. it's why it's been shown that just getting an all breath practice, not even meditation, but 10 minutes of proper breathing a day can help reduce central obesity simply because you're you're in a more vagal state than parasympathetic a sympathetic nervous yeah. system yeah yeah and you drop your cortisol secretion and then you because we all know what someone with a high cortisol looks like they look like a beach ball don't they mm. so you're trying to do all of that and then you've got to also try and address all the insulin resistance and you notice that all of these interventions are not about weight loss it's about insulin sensitivity but that equals weight loss, mm. right? Uh, and then you try and get things out of your life as best you can that are causing insulin resistance, such as artificial sweeteners, such as uh, you know drinking plastic bottled water. Uh, lots of drugs cause insulin resistance. That's why you see a lot of people on antidepressants or Lyrica and these drugs, they put on a lot of weight because these are cause insulin resistance. Do they really? I did not know that. That's the mechanism mm. underlying it. Yeah, that's right. why they get it. So you try and you got to sort of look at all of these dominoes and try and get them all. Mm. And then on top of that, you do an operation because the operation. Yeah, talk it, us through that. So, yeah. John, how do I prepare? We've made a decision that I want to have this operation. How do I prepare for it? Can you take me through that? Yeah. So the. So we're going to go ahead with surgery. Now, the reason for surgery, of course, is that the surgery, if you have 100 people, BMI 38, that go on the best lifestyle intervention that I just briefly outlined. Which I'm going to have to keep up for the rest of my life if I decide to have surgery. About 1% to 2% are going to succeed. Wow. Because the famine reaction is going to knock off most people. Whereas if you operate on 100 people, you're going to get good weight loss in almost all 100 of them you'll get significant weight regain in about 20, maybe 25 of them. So, And is that so, because they've fallen off yes, the because, exercise, yeah, the eating? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've never seen weight regain, regardless of the surgery, in patients who are eating 
the right diet, exercising, doing the right things. So the people who get a lot of weight loss but then relapse back into their sort of obesogenic environment will regain weight. It sort of makes sense, doesn't it? If you go back to what caused the problem, you'll get more of the problem. So the surgery is not magic. It doesn't allow you to become one of those irritating people that can sit on couch and eat pizzas and drink beer and have a six-pack. There are people like that. <laughs> but fact of the matter is the people I operate on are not them mm. genetically, right? Mm. The, 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 those people don't need surgery. So the point is that you've got to maintain these lifestyle changes. And that's why the preoperative education and the understanding of that's so important. So what we then do is we will assess people's nutrition because there's a lot of malnutrition in obesity. It's not uh, over-nutrition because people are eating a lot of empty calories mm, and that. So crap food pretty much. We do a whole panel of that and correct these sorts of things pre-op. So you work closely with the dietitian? Well, we have the dietitian in our rooms, yeah, and yep. a nurse practitioner, and we sort of try and get people assessed into, you know, nutritionally aware they know macros, they know all sorts of stuff, they know what protein is, What and if they don't, then we need to educate them on that before we proceed. And that's for the dietitian to do. Our approach in the first, we get everyone to lose weight for at least two, maybe four weeks and even longer, depending on BMI. Pre-surgery. Pre-surgery. Mm -hmm. Uh, these days we use a very low-calorie diet by one of the shakes. We use a Formulite, which is an Australian company, and have got very good. So not OptiFast? Uh, we have used OptiFast, and we will use OptiFast. So people often have a different preference. Right. Um, am I, we like Formulite because uh, the macros are a little bit better. It's higher protein, lower carbs, because what we're really trying to do is to put the person in a nutritional ketosis which means that you've got to be on about 25 up to 40 grams or less carbs a day for 48 hours and then you'll start to burn ketones. That's to do once your glycogen's empty in your liver, your body starts to burn fat. And it's super important because technically from our perspective that shrinks the liver because then we can see what we're doing, which is useful. But more importantly, the patient's going to be on a very low-calorie diet just simply because the an anatomic restrictions of the surgery is quite intense initially. So if they're in nutritional ketosis and they're capable of burning fat, in other words, their insulin levels are low because their carbs are low, then the, the low calories that they're on for the first three months or so are very well tolerated because their body's got plenty of fuel. It's got usually 50 or 60 kilos of fat to burn. But because you've turned on that, what I call the diesel engine versus the petrol carb engine, it, the, it, the transition's much easier for them. Mm. And it also, ketosis is nature's way of preventing muscle loss when you're burning weight quickly. Because Which we don't want. We don't want muscle loss. No, because that's one of the reasons where your basal metabolic rate resides is in your muscle, right? So, Which is yeah. why lifting heavy shit's really good. Yeah, so which is the other thing. So mm. the three things we can do to stop muscle loss and rapid weight loss is being ketosis, get adequate protein and do some resistance training. And for most of my patients, walking is a resistance training because they're so heavy. They're carrying, you know, a couple of big uh, sacks can I ask, are mm. uh, vegans, vegetarians, is it more difficult for them to lose weight 
with this method? Um, Have yeah, you seen so that I, at all? <coughs> well, the, is the, it easier? Yeah, so the problem with space reductive surgery and all the surgeries reduce your gastric uh, capacity is if you're eating these sorts of uh, high-volume foods that you've got to eat a lot of to get the calories because there's a lot of fibre and stuff, then it can be problematic from the protein intake perspective because you have to, if you're a vegan or a vegetarian, you have to eat a lot of carbohydrates to get your protein, don't you? Because you've got to eat the lentils and chickpeas and I'm not saying these things are bad, but getting your protein through salmon or grass-fed beef is a lot easier in terms of the, the size. So if you're going to do a weight loss surgery on a vegetarian or a vegan, you really got to have a very switched-on patient who understands exactly what they're doing because they're almost certainly going to need to use plant-based uh, protein supplements mm. long-term. Mm. And as long as they understand that, it's okay. Speaking of supplements... Following surgery, all patients need to take them, don't they? They need to take specific supplements. Can you talk to us about that? Um, yeah, so look, I think that we should all, you and I and everyone should take supplements these days, but uh, all of our patients... I think you and I are different types of doctors, though, <laughs> compared to some other doctors, John. Right. We both like our supplements, but I know a lot of other people don't. Yeah, well, a lot of people say something stupidly like, oh, if you're eating a balanced diet, you don't need supplements. But then, okay, how come every pregnant woman gets put on supplements? I mean, they're young girls or young ladies... They're uh, pregnant. Suddenly, they need supplements. Why? If uh, the modern diet. It's an so interesting great. point. Huh? <laughs> yeah. I mean, like seriously. Yeah. So, if if a, if a young fertile lady has to take supplements, I suspect we all do. Now, because our patients are ending up eating much smaller meals, they're generally long-term weight loss maintenance. You got to hold people about fifteen hundred kilocalories total long-term. We really at pains to make sure people eat calorie, uh, nutritionally dense food, not calorie dense foods. And therefore, you know, the, the CSIRO low-carb diet's perfect for that. But despite that, we would still recommend you take a multivitamin, you take some citric calcium, calcium. Uh, I'm big on people taking omega-3. Mm. Uh, I think we should all be on omega-3. We've engineered it out of our diet, an essential fatty acid, which has implications, I think. Yeah, now now there's actually evidence coming out on uh, women who are actually actively trying to conceive should be taking omega-3s. Yeah. They're advising it more, mm. um, which is interesting, getting back to that point. Well, if you think omega-3 used to come from, uh, you know, deep-sea fish, but all our fish is now farmed and at a much lower temperature, don't have the same oil and we used to also get it off herbivores that eat chlorophyll cows, but cows eat grain now. They don't eat grass anymore. Hence, the grass-fed beef is a different animal to a grain-fed beef in terms of the fat. So uh, you want to be getting omega-3, but I think these days we have to get it from uh, tablets, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, the omega-3, vitamin D is important. We monitor that. Uh, iron, uh, about... Probably a third of patients need some iron support, whether they have a sleeve or a gastric bypass. Um, a B12, 
certainly would have bypassed your need because you bypassed the antrum with a sleeve. Again, about 20, 30% might need B12. So we monitor these with a lab once a year and uh, they're fairly easy to do. I, I mean, I personally take supplements. I take a, a high-grade men's multivite. I take two tablets of garlic. I take omega-3. I take magnesium. Oh, sorry, magnesium's the other one we should all be on. Yeah, I, 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 that's I my favourite ma- supplement. Yeah. That's my number one supplement I, I recommend all my patients. Yeah. I take creatinine powder. I in, think in, It helps with insulin sensitivity, doesn't it? Does, it? Magnesium yeah, plus yeah. another how yeah. many 300 biochemical processes yeah, in our body everything. and most people are deficient anyway. Yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a huge issue. Um, I drink apple cider vinegar, which has magical benefits mm. according to lots of what people. What can't apple cider vinegar do? In fact, yeah, and I put uh, cinnamon in my chamomile mm-hmm. tea. Also good night, for insulin, insulin sensitivity. sensitivity. Yep. So I'm doing all everything to improve my insulin sensitivity all the time. Now, these are all small home sort of small hitters you like, but they're all a series of dominoes that are helpful, aren't they? Mm. So I, mm. I think that... Um, not taking supplements, you'd probably want to be living in a farm in Tasmania and growing and cooking all your own stuff, and then you make making it sure the soil has enough. Yeah, of all of well, exactly. Well, Tasmania's right got an iron deficiency. Yeah. That's why they had goiters there. So, part of Australia's problem is that it's such an old country that the soil is fairly deplete already, and then with modern agriculture, you know, it's even less healthy. Can I ask PCOS? Is there anything that any advice you can give our PCOS obese patients out there from what you see? Well, I don't think PCOS people can't lose weight any easier than other people, or you might say it's harder for them. I don't think it's easy for anyone to lose weight. And uh, I don't. Can you say that again? Can you please say that again? Because there are people out there who think that weight loss is easy. No, Especially wait, wait, the skinny people. No, weight loss is never easy for anyone. Uh, the most important concept in obesity is never become obese. If you can prevent yourself from becoming overweight, and I guess for parents that's really about protecting our kids from obesity, once you've raised that set point, you've got a lifelong problem mm. as far as we understand. And, and, and given that we have to do things as drastic as an operation, it'll tell you this, the magnitude of that problem. But even being as sensitive as oh, I've got to go up two notches in my belt mm. to go, hey, wait a minute, let's not let this thing get out of control. Yeah, uh, I think that's super important because if we go back to our rubber bands, when they're a little bit tight, you can do something about that. So if I ask you to lose five kilos, yeah, it's okay. There will be a famine reaction. I mean, the landmark study on that showed that the hormonal changes that are consistent with starvation occur with a 10 kilo weight loss and will be present until the person regains that 10 kilos. That's why it's so hard for any of us to lose any weight without being sort of fully committed to it because we're up against this this thing. Uh, but for people with PCOS that are morbidly obese, I mean, they've got 30 to 40 kilos to lose. So by the time they get into a normal BMI weight range or at least, say, below 30 BMI, the famine reaction is so massive that they just can't resist it. So I don't think the PCOS person is anything different from a diabetic or anyone else with hyperinsulinemia. Uh, I think it's just hard for everyone to lose weight. And the 
hyperinsulinemia, of course, is that that insulin resistance is causing insulin resistance on the hypothalamus and and it causes leptin resistance. And so that there's a whole endocrine dysfunction going on. That's why the body's perceiving that you should be 150 kilos, not, you know, but whether we can ever cure that cellular dysfunction once we've established it, I I don't know. Mm. It's complicated. But look, the PCOS person remains, I think, a very good target for surgery because they have the metabolic syndrome. So, you know, 10% of women have PCOS. About 60% of them will have elements of the metabolic syndrome, depending what age. Less than 50, I think it's something like 40%, whereas the 40-year-old women or less would only be 5% in the general population. So they have this you know, and their incidence of becoming diabetic at age 50 is really high. And so they almost have mortality curves that track men, you know, they're not protected from cardiovascular disease. And I presumably this is because of the hyperandrogen state that characterizes a normal man, but is abnormal in the female, mm. translates this cardiovascular risk, which is driven by the metabolic syndrome. So if you can ameliorate that with an operation, then not only can you reverse, like in the few studies, I think there's a meta-analysis of about 2,000 PCOS uh, ladies, various studies and outcomes, so they all will resolve their insulin resistance, which, because we know that from diabetes studies, which is diabetes being a better or more strong marker of insulin resistance, if you like, that that'll resolve. And the metabolic syndrome resolves as part of that, you know, so your hyperlipidemia, vascular reactivity, intermal thickness, all of those things that you can look for. Uh, In terms of menstrual irregularities, nearly all of it resolves, so they'll start to ovulate again, and that translates into an increased fertility. Speaking of which... Fertility hasn't been looked at very well, Mm. but in those studies, infertility was something like... 20% 20% and it went down to 5%. So, so what do you say to these women after they've had their surgery? Do you do you say to them, don't look at getting pregnant for at least a year post-surgery? What's the, what's the standard yeah, advice I, now? Absolutely. We, and why? Well, so the, the advice? advice is not to get pregnant for the first 12 months mm-hmm. and that's because the weight loss following a weight loss operation goes for about 12 months for sleeve or bypass. Until it plateaus? Yeah, it sort of stabilises. So if you were wanting to be really careful, you'd probably say 18 months. Mm. The the problem, we get into a bit of a negotiation here, but with these some of these patients because... They want to get pregnant. They want to ASAP. get pregnant tomorrow, yeah. and But you don't really want to be having a pregnancy when you're losing weight because there's two different mechanisms. So as you know, pregnancy It's like a, putting a brake on and then you yeah, accelerate at the same time. It's, yeah, and yeah. then there's a nutritional concern mm. for the fetus. Uh, so we generally wait 12 months. And I think at that 12 months, 18 months, our patients are actually better, healthier than most ladies who just get pregnant because they're already on their supplements and they're 
careful, you know, of what do they eat and, and been drink. exercising. Yeah. And Whereas most mm. women, they don't go on the folate until they've missed two periods. Mm. It's a little bit late. Or maybe when they it? find out when they're pregnant, they yeah. might go, oh, I should start oh, popping this stop, stuff. I better stop drinking Yeah, now. Or, yeah, it's having the secondhand smoke or the firsthand smoke. Yeah, they've yeah. already been pregnant for yeah, eight weeks. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Which yeah. is the most critical mm. bit, isn't it? Mm, the first exactly. 12 weeks and most of that they're still partying and having a good time yeah but anyway that's all good but so yeah 12 months we try and and, and hold it off for and if um the data on pregnancy following bariatric surgery is that it's all good you know you have less preeclampsia less gestational diabetes uh, even the anaesthetist is happier because epidurals are easier. Everything's easier. The obstetrician about, is is happier. Yeah. The midwives, the patient, everyone. Yeah, yeah. And, healthier babies. And, and the child is less likely to be huge, less likely. Uh, in fact, there's a very interesting study a long time ago that showed that women who have children when they're morbidly obese and then have surgery and then have children, that these two kids which presumably have the same genetics have a much different risk of obesity as adults so if you're spawned while your mum was or if you're in utero when your mum's morbidly obese your risk of obesity is very high yourself as a teenager and it's probably because the metabolome um is different in that child as well yeah. isn't it you know whereas the... if that mum has you when yeah. she's normal weight you've got a normal risk mm. so you know, this again, I think, is interesting because it means that a lot of these epigenetic factors are occurring in utero. So the things that predict your obesity risk could have happened when you're in utero. So again, it's a bit uh, unfair to be individually blaming mm, people. I was going to say, yeah. exactly right. And, yep. it, and, it's, and, and it's like a U-shaped curve too because if, if your mum was starving when you had when she had you, you also have an increased risk of BC because then you're upregulated, you know, in Or even utero. stressed. Yeah. You know, I see that some women who went through all these bushfires and experienced the bushfire stress. I wonder what's going to happen with those kids when, with, you know, when they have those children. Um, yeah, yeah, I think I think stress is generally, you know, have we saw, people used to talk about stress and then we all dismissed it as scientific doctors, but I think that significant stress events are huge, you know. Mm. Like in paediatrics now, you probably know if kids have more than three or four significant stress things as a child, and this could be like a nasty divorce or an abusive uh, partner in the household or something bad happened at school, if they collect two or three of those, their incidence of obesity, cardiovascular disease is predicted to be like hugely mm. more than people, kids who haven't had that. So these, these stresses have an effect mm. on us that's epigenetic and then will revertebrate, you know. Even that big Dutch study, the, um, the Dutch famine, mm. was a really interesting study. But, you know, we can't sort of do anything about the past, unfortunately. So that's I think right. the, to get you back to your PCOS girl, I, I think if she has surgery and she follows healthy diet, exercise, good sleep, stress management, so on, then she'll they'll do very well and they'll lose pretty much all of the manifestations of their PCOS. Her, the hairy, hairiness tends to respond probably the least, okay. maybe about 50% mm. reduction, whereas for most of the other 
manifestations of the PCOS, you look at about a 70% resolution rate uh, in those. And what advice can you give fertility doctors, professionals looking after these women? What should we be saying to them in, in advising them to consider bariatric surgery? Because I find that they're probably not having those conversations. How can you encourage that doctor to... Yeah, so the, the to change it, their it's tune. a difficult um, conversation, I think, for a lot of doctors to have with the patient because some patients get offended if you start talking about their weight. And I think this is part of the issue that we're not treating it like a disease because their offence is not... Like nobody would get offended if you said, "Oh, you have diabetes, or you have, you know, or you have high vitiligo blood pressure, or whatever," because it's a disease. But or high cholesterol. <laughs> to say that someone's overweight is a moral judgment rather than a medical diagnosis. That's the difference, and I think therefore we should be working much harder at making a medical diagnosis, and then. It would be that the everyone should have, like for all things, a sort of at least a thumbnail view of what's effective at what level of obesity. And and the interventions, like the NH and MRC has a publication that all doctors should read called The Treatment of Obesity. Yeah, that's a good one. I recently yeah. looked at that. And it's got that escalating pyramid. So, you know, lifestyle measures, diet, exercise, sleep, and then you can increase the to sort of various dietary interventions, you know, with uh, meal preps and all that. And then you can go up further and you have dietetic consults, but you also now start to look at medications uh, and stuff. And then you go, then, as I said, there's this big gray zone, you know, between BMI 28 and 35, where we really don't have a lot of stuff where we're desperately looking for medicines really to fill the hole, I think, because mm. what we're trying to do is treat this famine reaction, you know. And then we have surgery starting at BMI 35. And and so we're sort of matching the magnitude of the intervention to the magnitude of the problem. Of the problem. Yeah. Before I start asking you more personal questions, John, mm. any other any other points you want to make and, and that our listeners know about that you think are quite important to take away? Um, I think it's incredibly important for every individual to be in charge of their own health mm. and to try and educate themselves a little bit about what is healthy food, what is healthy lifestyle, what it all means because that's not just important for yourself, but if you're a, if you're a mother or, or, or a father, you need to impose this upon your kids and protect them really from what's a very toxic environment at the moment, mm. uh, the so-called obesogenic environment. And uh, education can come through lots of ways, through podcasts like this. It can come through watching. I like to watch YouTube videos. There's so much good stuff on there, and I have... I don't know if I'm allowed to advertise to people that I think are really good on it, but go for it. Uh, well, my favourite is a guy called Sten Ekberg, S T E N Ekberg, E K B E R G. So he's a from Sweden, but he works in the States now as a holistic doctor, uh, and he gives like he's got maybe 40, 50, 20 minute YouTube tutorials on insulin resistance, on PCOS, uh, on on everything uh, about getting your lifestyle rights. And uh, so I think that it's 
really important to educate yourself about these things because nobody else is going to do it for you. And just like if you do have surgery, you also got to be the one that's on the bus. You can't be forced into surgery by someone else because you're going to have to make lifestyle changes to make the surgery optimal, safe and durable. And and if you're not prepared to make those changes, then that's okay, but then it's best not to have surgery as well. So I think... I think understanding is really important. And I think for people who are overweight, they should, or morbidly obese, they should realise that there are solutions that can help them. I don't think weight loss surgery should be viewed as the easy way out. At the moment, in terms of the studies, it's the only way out. <laughs> like if you're morbid, the Swedish obese subject study, which I alluded to in the start has tracked people for 30 years now and the people the 2000 people in the control arm the ones on the diet haven't lost any weight mm, we'll have to put that in the in the show notes for people to to reference the sos study has been salami chopped up to about 20 different papers but fundamentally what it shows over 30 years is that patients who have surgery will lose weight and that weight loss while their summary gain still stays meaningful enough to translate into increased survival in the surgical group versus the diet group. And that, you might say, when I put that up, people always go, oh, yes, but my diet's a lot better. Well, this is 30 years of dieting in the Swedish healthcare system where they would, you know, go for all the different trendy diets as they pop up. But the bottom line is that it doesn't matter how you reduce your calories, whether you do it for a pretty can high-carb, low-fat diet all the way to a ketogenic diet, your body detects a calorie deficiency, sets up the famine reaction and will sabotage it. That's why diets don't work. You know? mm. And quality of food, as you yeah. alluded to earlier. Thank you. I have some uh, questions now for you. Uh, who has been a great inspiration in your life? Uh, yes, I've thought about that a lot uh, since you, you said this. You can have more than one. <laughs> well, my obviously my father's been a great influencer to me because he's a very scientific, accurate sort of a guy and has spent all his life, even now, he would be spending stuff reading journals and textbooks. What was his background? He's a production engineer. All oh, right, But... So he always comes at everything through science and knowledge and uh, I really respect That's where you get that. it from, John. And he, like, yeah, he's always, well, you've got to define the problem before you can get a solution. And and just his commitment to that sort of has been very inspirational for me. Um, I've obviously had some good mentors in surgery. Uh, as you know, in medicine, there's all sorts of characters. Um I guess the most influential people were my uh, uh, the people that I worked with at St George, which would have been a guy called David Hunt, who was the upper GI unit leader when I was a young surgeon. And uh, is he still around? No, no, he's retired now. And and the divisional director of surgery, Dennis King, these guys was like phenomenally good surgeons at the time, and uh, I learned a lot off and. Uh, when I worked in the um, in the Glasgow, Clem Emery, who was a pancreas surgeon there, was uh, someone I learned a lot of. And I particularly found him uh, 
you know, he was dealing with chronic alcoholics with pancreatitis and um, I just learned a lot about him, about how not to judge people. But at the same time... Sounds uh, like a bit of a dude. Yeah, well, he treated these difficult people, but he wouldn't take any nonsense from them either. You yeah. Know? Like there, there has to be a, you know, this is the way it is, but I'm prepared to help you, you mm. know. And so it was sort of like a tough love sort of clinic mm. and I learned how you could do or that it's possible to do that, you know, without being offish with patients and, and actually empathic with their problem, but recognising, at least in that cohort, that alcohol was not their friend and that, that you couldn't sugarcoat that, you know. Mm. Mm. So these were influential sort of guys in, in my training, I think. And in terms of songs, when you operate, do you listen to music? Do you have music playing? Uh I don't choose them. The, the oh, okay. younger people in the operating theatre get to choose. If you could choose your music, well, actually, why don't you choose your music? Uh, well, I'm, Is that I'm, because you don't really pay attention to it? No, look, I like music a lot, but I'm not particularly musical in the sense that I'm not obsessed by it. So I, when I drive a car, I just listen to the radio because therefore you get different songs. Mm. Because I find if in the old days, at least the CDs, you end up just listening to one CD. Yeah. You know? So I, now I like, of course, Spotify and these things where you get. But uh, do you yeah. have a favourite song then you could share with us? You like to listen to? Uh, no, I couldn't tell you off the <laughs> top of my head. Look, I, I'm I like all modern music. I really do. I I just sort of uh, I'm not harking back to old school music. I, I like the, the different sort of genres as they come through and, I mean, these musicians are so incredibly talented at what they do and, um, yeah. But as I said, you got to keep the kids happy in the operating theatre so the young nursing staff... <laughs> the kids. They, they need to be able to play their techno. And your you know? assistant, of yeah, course. Yes, exactly. Tell me favourite books. Yeah. Uh, so my favourite, uh, again, I thought about it a bit. So I read a lot. I maybe read two or three books a week sometimes, so I forget what I choose for your books. Yeah, I do. It's a bit of a problem. No, it's not. How could that ever be a problem? <laughs> well, you end Don't up say at, that to a person who loves books too, You end up you, at John. the bookshop <laughs> all the time, you see. What are you reading at the moment? Uh, I'm reading a book called uh, Brief History, which is about this guy who's a um, uh it comes from a sort of southern, a Californian background. He ends up in this um, Hampstead College and he's into ancient Greek and he's trying to integrate himself with the sort of intellectuals there and he ends up in this quite a, quite a, uh, with a quite a um, unique teacher, you could say, only has five kids in his class. And I so think, it's a fiction book? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Not sure I like it that much. Uh, I generally, I, if a book that hasn't got me by fifty pages, I tend to perhaps not finish it. I read recently a called Fleischer is in Trouble, which is a book from written by a New York woman, Fleischer being a hepatologist, transplant hepatologist, and and uh, it starts off fiction of course, fiction. Yeah, yep. but it's about this guy's life and how it all deteriorates and. Um, he gets separated from his wife. He's in his mid-40s and uh, the first half's written from his perspective 
and you're sort of like, yeah, yeah, you know, she was a bad person. And then the second half's written from her perspective and you think, oh, okay, there's this different side to this story. Sounds like a good book. Yeah, it's a super good book. Mm. You should read it. It's very insightful and it's like all things from New York at sort of the epicentre of, of human. Like, so here's a, here's a hepatologist, transplant hepatologist, and he's viewed as a loser at school but from the other fathers there because, you know, he's only a small moneymaker. Like in New York now, the doctors are the shit kickers. Yeah. Right? <laughs> they always were, weren't they? No, no, they, no, I think they used to do okay. But yeah. now, you know, unless you're running a hedge fund or something, yeah. you're yep. just not doing it right, you know. And uh, yep. that's part of the conflict in this book because his wife becomes a super uh, successful um, advertising agent guru. for Guru mm. and he becomes like the low-income earner being on, you know, a professor's wage at a prestigious university. Is, <laughs> it, a, is it a fat book? Is it a big book? No, no, it's easy to read. I'll give it to you. I've oh, got it here. I'd love that. Mm. Secondhand's mm. good. Uh, in terms of I like to read lots of different books about self-help or, you know, improving and I found, and I know this is a bit controversial and certainly with my daughter, uh, Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules of Life, I found a really good read. I think there was a great chapter about lobsters. Was that the one? Yeah. Yeah, you told me mm. about that one. I, I Look, he's a super intelligent guy and he's can he writes extremely well. He wrote a book before that called Maps of Meaning, which is trying to integrate all religions into evolutionary psychology and philosophy. And I got through like 20 pages and I just couldn't. It was like you have to have a certain vocabulary, certain theological, psychological understanding to even uh, get the book. So both my dad and I tapped out of that. Book. <laughs> but his his twelve rules of life is 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 a simple read. And what I like about it is that each chapter has a very doable, powerful message that you can go out and you do can straight action away. straight away yeah like yep. there's one that says always tell the truth brackets at least don't lie now then he, and you might say well like all the chapters could fit on a post-it note and, <laughs> and sound sort of a bit trite but when you read it like in that chapter he goes on about how a lot of the atrocities that have happened in the world is because people have lied or not told the truth, you know, like what's going on in a totalitarian regime, you know, why has it not been reported properly, you know, like the truth matters. Mm. If we don't tell the truth there are consequences and that starts with us individually and what you tell yourself yeah, that's right. And Conversation you have in your head about, about yourself yeah, first and, and foremost. Yeah, and at least don't lie, like... Mm. Always tell the truth, but at least don't lie. So you're part of, you have a responsibility to be part of the, you know, he calls it the logos, the saying of the truth to the world, you know, and if you become part of that, then you will be improving the world as simple as just from yourself. So, you you know, this is like 30, 40 pages where it goes through the history and tyrannies and, because people didn't tell the truth, but at the end it comes down to you is to tell the truth, you know. I think it's a pretty simple request, but it's super hard, right? Super, super important for us doctors to do that with our patients, isn't yes, it? Yes, regardless and, of it, so yeah. yeah, it's comfortable or not. Yeah, we can't sugarcoat things too much at all. No. We have to tell them the truth and that's why they come to us. So 
Yes, well, yeah. I think that's important. So I, I like that. I mean, the, the reason it's controversial is that he's been hijacked by this sort of men's rights slash right-wing politics, which I don't actually think he ever intended it to become like that, but that's how it's just become because he he shot to fame because he wouldn't... Uh, they tried to legislate in Canada the gender neutrality language and and he opposed from a freedom of speech perspective being told what words to use he's not against this not discriminating against people he's just saying you don't have the right to tell me what words to use because that's never been done in the history of mm. of the commonwealth countries ever you know we've not ever had that sort of heavy-handed political correctness legislated you know yeah that's so that's why he became a sort of poster child for all the you What's know, his name again for our listeners? Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson. There's lots of stuff on him and he's gained a real following amongst men for some reason. Oh, and good to see. He reckons, um, I watched a YouTube video on him the other day and he said that when he has an audience there's like 90% men. So he reckons there's a reason for that because in psychology it's 90% women. Mm. So... The men are engaging with his message and a big part of his message he thinks is that men are looking for responsibility and that's what gives you meaning in life. So you've got to feel, have responsibility of something and then you can sort of work towards that because that's like an antidote towards meaningless. Mm. So if you get your responsibilities ripped away from you, then you go, well, I'll just go and do nothing then, you know. That sense of purpose. Yeah. I have a quiz for you. Yes. The quiz is about Michelle Obama Mm. and it's true or false questions. Okay. For our uh, listeners, you'll be able to look at these answers uh, on the the notes of our next episode. So true (laughs) or false? Fighting childhood obesity was near the top of her agenda as First Lady, true or false? True. She planted a vegetable garden on the White House North Lawn in 2009. True. She was behind the Let's Move initiative. Uh, True. She launched Let's Let's Girl Learn, an initiative to help girls around the world attend school. True. Last question. <laughs> she, I think maybe have I made this too easy? Um, last question. Made Vanity, the magazine, mm. best dress list five years in a row, true or false? I think that might be true as well. <laughs> I mean, she's a pretty amazing person. Have you have you actually read her book or listened to her book on audio? No, I haven't. Apparently, but I'll apparently she won should. a Grammy or an, uh, an award for that. Mm. No, I, I mean, she is an amazing person. Mm. I mean, mm. if you look at, well, look who's the first lady now and let's compare the pedigree there. Thank you so much, John. <laughs> I really I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank, Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, cheers. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, ladies, with the fantastical John and that you've learnt lots like I did. Please share this episode with others if you think it'll help them. If you know that there are people out there trying to lose weight, please share this episode with them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel and if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr Tash Fanny Mechanic and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. 
Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people, interesting, amazing people like an interview or books you'd like us to read and share. Until next time, stay fantabulous.